have a year to live, what would the next year of your life look like? What would you fill it up with? In truth, the day of our death is uncertain. We don't know. But in our culture, there's kind of a slang lingo for what you're doing in the last little bit of your life, what you hope to accomplish. It's the idea of a bucket list, right? There's been movies made about bucket lists. I know some of you have bucket lists, whether you say it out loud or not. Um, But I want to share something interesting this morning because it relates to our passage. This idea of a bucket list, these final things that you're scurrying around to do to accomplish that you don't want to miss out on, that you have to experience before your final breath. I want to share with you what the top 10 answers would be of singles in the United States from Google. Are you ready? The number one thing on a bucket list for a single in America 83% said fall in love. We knew that was coming, right? Fall in love. Second, go on a wine tour in Napa Valley. Third, change someone else's life for the better. That's positive. Number four, get to my ideal weight. Number five, go on a wild animal safari. Number six, ride a hot air balloon. And I won't give it away, but there's actually a a member of your church that tried to do that this morning. I'll let you find out after the service. You can ask who it is. Number seven, see the northern lights. Number eight, go to the Super Bowl. Number nine, swim with the dolphins. Number ten, travel through Europe. What didn't make the top ten were things like see the Grand Canyon, even though that's, that's on some bucket list. The Great Wall of China, going to New York for Times Square on New Year's Eve. But I mention this because how sad that most of the things on that list, most of them, it's just fleeting. It's just entertainment. What you choose to be doing in the final years of your life tell a great deal about who you are and your character and what's important to you. And in our passage today, We're reading right on the heels of an Old Testament king, King David, who has just completed the final task on his bucket list. He's just completed the final task. What has he been doing? David has been gathering up bunches and bunches by the armfuls materials for building the temple of God. So as his strength is now fading, He's wearied himself gathering all this gold and silver, building materials and stones and wood. He is now an old man about to die. His strength is weak. But his son Solomon's strength is rising up, and it's strong. And this is that pivotal moment in the passage we're going to look at today, a pivotal moment where the baton is passed from King David to Solomon, where he establishes his his kingship. To see what I mean, turn with me to 1 Chronicles 28. This is page 356 in the Bible in front of you in the pew. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of background. 1 Chronicles is not really the first book you would probably choose to do your daily devotional in. 
But Chronicles was so important in the life of ancient Israel. It's important to us today as Christians. It was actually the last book in the Hebrew, in the Torah. And it was a book, yes, it had overlap with Kings, First and Second Kings, but it, it added detail that we don't have in the book of Kings, like the passage we're going to look at today. The author is unknown. He's known as the chronicler. This was either a priest or a Levite during the Persian period, 539 to 322 B.C. But this book was written after God's people had come out of exile. After exile. And the chronicler is writing these stories that are true of King David, how the kingship was established. But even before that, he's writing a list of genealogies. And he moves from Adam to Abraham. Then he moves to Jacob. And he's listing all the names of the sons and the lineage. And then he moves to David. And then even in chapter 9 of the book, it mentions the returned exiles, their genealogy. And all of this was happening to inspire faith in the people. That God had not forgotten them. That even though their temple had been destroyed... Everything had been stripped away from them. God had placed them back in the land. And the same promises he made before exile were still true for them then. They would be looking for a Messiah. So the Chronicles is an important book. If you've never studied it, take time in it. Um, It's fascinating. And the passage we're going to look at today is, is one of my favorites in the entire book. So look with me at chapter 28. We're going to focus on verses 9 and 10, but read with me beginning in verse 1. We're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 12 just to get context. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, 
the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And now David turns to his son Solomon and says this in verse 9. And you, Solomon my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. Man, can you imagine that moment? All the important people, the VIPs of Israel, are gathered in one place. All the mighty men, all the seasoned warriors, all the officials, everyone in David's court, all of David's sons, they're all assembled together. All the commanders, even those who are in charge of property and livestock, hey, come in from the fields. There's something important happening today. They all gathered together. And in this special moment of a father speaking to his son in front of everyone, we have verses 9 and 10. Imagine if you were Solomon and you're sitting down. It says David is standing up, talking to his son. Solomon's sitting down. Imagine if you were Solomon. You were getting ready to be king, and your dad had just provided you everything. David gave leadership and vision for the nation on what to build, so he provided direction. David gave Jerusalem as the place, so he provided the location. David gave military strength and subdued all the enemies surrounding the area so he provided rest David provided iron wood heavy stones marble in abundance David provided materials David provided hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of gold and silver silver that's refined and bronze David provided wealth. David assembled other helpers and servants, loyal workers, so he, he provided help. And David even provided the architectural details, the blueprint of this temple. David provided the plans. What's left for Solomon to do? Build it. He has to build the temple. But what's fascinating here is that in this pivotal moment when everyone's watching and David's provided everything that Solomon needs, he spends more, talking, more time talking about something other than the temple. 
Do you notice that? That's what's fascinating here. So little about the actual building project of the temple is said in verses 9 and 10, but so much is said about seeking the Lord and walking rightly with Him. David wants his son to maintain deep spirituality, devotion to the Lord, something that would last long after the temple is built. It would only be seven years and then the temple would be built. And so I believe when we think about this verse in context, verses 9 and 10, we get the main idea, the main point of what the author is trying to tell us. The main point of this passage and the main point of the sermon this morning is this. Continually cultivate your walk with the Lord. That's very simple, but it's demanding, isn't it? Continually cultivate your walk with the Lord. These verses are very personal. Some verses in the Bible are talking about you know, everyone corporately. This is personal, continually lifelong it doesn't there's no end point to this cultivate your walk with the lord to help us see how this really is the main point of this passage this morning i want to walk through verses 9 and 10 with you and we want to ask four questions of the text that i think draw out these implications four questions this morning first question is what does it mean to walk with god anyway what does it mean the word walk is not even in verse 9. So, how, preacher, how are you going to say that it means walk with God? That's the first question. What does it mean to walk with God? Secondly, what does it require of us to walk with God? Thirdly, why does it matter? What's the point? Fourth question, what do I do? Now what? When I leave this gathering today, what do I do? What do I do Monday morning? So we're going to answer those four questions in light of this passage. So look with me again at the beginning of verse 9. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him. Do you know in the Bible that phrase, walk with God, is a catchphrase for walking and serving? It really is. So the word walk is not in our passage, but it is a biblical category. You don't have to turn there, but 1 John 2, verse 6, talks about if we abide with him, meaning Christ, if we abide with him and we say we have fellowship with him, we say that we know him, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Galatians 5 speaks of keeping in step with the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We don't just live by the Spirit, but we actually walk by the Spirit. And right from the opening pages of the Bible, we encounter this very idea of walking with God. The Bible expects us to, to understand what it means. It's a synonym for knowing and serving God. Enoch, Genesis 5.22, it says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It's possible to walk with the Lord for 300 years. But not just Enoch. It says again in the next chapter of Genesis, verse 6, 
Chapter 6, verse 9, Noah. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah did what with God? Noah walked with God. All the Old Testament saints were intended to walk with God. Micah 6.8 tells us that, doesn't it? He has told you, O man, what is good and what he requires of you. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This is not just something for the patriarchs, for the, the leaders of the nation. This is not just an Old Testament idea. It's in the New Testament as well. The Bible expects us to walk with God. But how could David confidently say this to his son Solomon when everyone's gathered together? Well, think about David's life. David wrote the Psalms. Have you ever read through the Psalter? Every human emotion is expressed there. Every sigh of the heart is expressed there. David walked with God through highs and through lows. David was a shepherd. David killed Goliath. David ran from Saul. David became king. And he walked with God through all of those moments of his life. So when he's telling his son Solomon, walk with God, a.k.a. know God and serve God, He's not saying, hey, Solomon, it's now time to know the Lord and walk with him because you're going to be king. Solomon would hear his dad saying that, knowing that, whoa, David has been doing that his whole life. And if I haven't been doing that, I better be doing that now. But what does this mean for us today? We're not Solomon, we weren't there. Here's what I think it means for us today. Verse 9 says, Know the God of your Father and serve Him. There's a distinction. Knowing and serving are two different things. The, the passage makes that plain. It makes it clear. Some churches, some pastors, some Christians even might blur the lines here, but this is not helpful. We've got to be clear. Knowing and serving are two different things. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they complement one another. Do you remember how in the Gospels, Jesus said, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's those who know him, because he says, depart from me, I never knew you. If we replace knowing the Lord with a service to him, and we think we can choose one of the two, we're in eternal danger if we do that. Jesus said he came to serve, not to be served. Doesn't it sound kind of like Jesus picked one of these? Wasn't Jesus just here to serve? Yes, he was here to serve, but what did Jesus often do? He would retreat away and go get alone with the Father in prayer and praise. Jesus knew the Father intimately. And he served. Our human nature is to exclude one in favor of the other. You remember Mary and Martha? The two sisters? In the Gospels? Martha was distracted with much serving. 
much serving. I wonder if that resonates with you this morning. I wonder if God's Word has reminded you again, not of something that you've never heard before, but something that has faded or grown dull in your life, that God is preeminently concerned with us knowing Him, not merely serving Him. All the other religions of the world ask what of their adherence? Service. Doing certain things. Almsgiving. Praying certain, certain directions when you pray. Activities that you have to do. But we as believers in the living God are unique because our God tells us to know Him, not merely to serve Him. So just as David is reminding his own family member here in this passage, we need to strive in the same way to remind our family members. We need to pray for the members of our family and our church family that we would maintain this distinction of knowing and serving and be listening. And if somebody blurs the two together or if we see somebody that they seem to serve a lot. I haven't really asked them lately about their, their knowing God. What, what has God been teaching them lately of himself and showing his character? That would be a great question to ask. A wise question to ask to care for your brothers and sisters here. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. The Bible says right here at the beginning of verse 9, know God. Meaning, you can know God. Scripture wouldn't tell us to do something if it wasn't possible. It's possible with God's help. But if it was impossible to know God, we would not have the beginning of the verse say, know God. That's very elementary. But God reveals himself. God reveals himself in many ways through general revelation, through the sky, the heavens declare the glory of God. Proclaim His handiwork. Our own conscience bears witness that there is a God. But more specifically than all those things, it's God's self-revelation, His Word, His Scripture. This is what makes knowing Him possible, isn't it? God's Word. His revelation. It says in 1 Samuel 3.21, the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. And how did he do it? By the word of the Lord. There's the connection. God reveals himself by the word. If we're going to know him, we should do it by the word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture is breathed out by God. So these words that we're reading this morning, that you're listening to, are not the words of a mere mortal. They are words from the living God, breathed out by Him, meant to be intaked into your body, digested, if you will, absorbed. We don't live merely by food. We live upon every word of God, don't we, as Christians? You may be sitting here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. You're here with a friend or you're just listening by chance. Does that sound strange to you that we as Christians claim to actually know God and have a real 
relationship with him? Does that sound strange to you? But ask yourself the question, if you believe that God can't be known, how did you come up with that conclusion? What are you basing that on? Who told you that? Because that's not what the Bible says, is it? The Bible says God can be known, that we should know him. Take heart, Christians. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As a side note, we're spending most of our time on question one today. But how are we going to do this? How do we actually know God? It's great to say, yeah, know God and do it. You've got his word. Go, go figure it out. How do we do it? Growing up in church, I used to get so frustrated when I, I felt like I didn't know how to apply what was said. I want to share with you a quote from J.I. Packer in the book Knowing God. It changed my life. How are we to do this? He says, quote, how are we to do this? How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And he says this, The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It's that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. The things that we learn about God, that we hear, we then take in meditation and thought and embrace it before God, which leads to prayer and praise to God. So there's a speaking to us that God does, and there's a speaking back to him that we do, and there is a real relationship there. The demons, all they have is that factual knowledge about God. Jim Elliott, a missionary who died on the mission field, in the 1950s in his journal, he wrote that scriptural friendship, knowledge, intimacy in the scriptures, it's, it has more of a basis in what not another knows about me, but what another has shared with me. Communion, fellowship. That's what David is charging his son Solomon with here. Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him. The spiritual disciplines help us do this. They're means of grace. Our prayer, our fasting, our singing as a church, the things we do as a congregation, these help us know God as we speak God's word to one another. So a question you might want to begin to ask church members, put it in your repertoire as this is, this is a lunchtime question. I'm going to ask this anytime I get lunch with a church member. Ask your fellow church members or when you're in their homes, ask them this. What has God been showing you about himself lately? What's he been showing you about himself? That's a hard question to dodge if you're not spending time knowing God, isn't it? 
Well, he's been showing me that it's really good to greet people at the door of the church when they come in. No, no, no. What's God showing you about his character? About himself? About his ways? This is advice for the ages, isn't it? And it's more than advice. This is a command. Know the God of your father, Solomon. But it rings true for us today. Well, let's spend a little bit less time on each of these questions. We're going to move through these quickly. That was question one. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to know him, to know him personally, and to serve him. The second question, what does it require of us to walk with God? Is it kind of like cheering for your favorite sports team? You just, you're committed whenever there's a game, and if there's not, you don't have to wear the colors and just go about your business? Well, look, look at what it says in the second part of verse 9 there. Know the God of your Father, serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. This is a similar echo of the great commandment, isn't it, that we read earlier in the service. Our whole heart, our whole being, it's an idea of having an undivided heart. No rival idols, no rival loves. That's what God wants. To say it in the most basic, non-churchy, non-Christian way possible, if you order a pizza, or if you go to the grocery store and you buy a frozen pizza, which I have a lot of experience of in my college days, what would you think if you opened that box, whether it's a guy delivering it at your door or you pulling it out of the oven, and there's just kind of three-fourths of a pizza there, there's a huge wedge missing. Would you not be a little bit sad? Okay, 10,000 times more, far more infinite than that insignificant illustration. God wants all of your heart. He doesn't want you here worshiping him. He doesn't want you spending time with him where you're just giving him a little peace. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. Your whole heart. The heart is where the battle is fought. This is where we fight against sin. Anything that would seek to draw our affections away from Christ, this is the beauty of sanctification, isn't it? Our hearts are being continually made more whole to the Lord. And our minds are being made more willing. It says there a whole heart and a willing mind. A willing mind in the original language here, it's actually the word for delight. So you could read this, serve the Lord with a delighting mind. Know the Lord with a a delighting mind. It's an eagerness to obey and know God. The reverse of this is an unwilling mind. We can have willing minds because God's word is always true. Our labor is never in vain. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He had a willing mind all of his days. But how could David say this to Solomon? David didn't go to seminary. David didn't have all these spiritual mentors who gave him all these books on theology. How could David say this? Have a whole heart, have a willing mind. Well, do you remember what happened In 2 Samuel 11, when David was chosen, it all started 
with an unwillingness to go out to war. This is before Bathsheba. So when David was chosen king, you remember how he was chosen because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart? Okay, check, I got it. But what about this whole unwillingness of the mind? You remember in 2 Samuel 11, David is sitting on his rooftop. It's the time of the year when the kings go out to war, but he's not willing to do that. He's being lazy. His mind is not willing. And eventually he commits adultery. He commits murder. All of it traced back to his mind, no longer being willing to do the task God put in front of him. This disobedience of an unwilling mind, not having a whole heart, this is what caused the exile. The people would bring their sacrifices, but their heart wasn't in it. They would bring lame and blind animals. Their minds were not willing to follow God, and God sent them into exile because of their lack of faith. But right after these words, we have an incredible motivation. Serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Can you imagine that? God understands every plan and thought you have right at this moment. And he searches your heart. When we were in the airport two days ago, I, I caught myself being just fixated on the cameras where baggage and luggage was going underneath and it was being scanned, kind of the x-ray. Some people may have thought, man, this guy is, there's a problem with him. He's just staring at other people's bags as they go through. It was so fascinating to see on the outside, okay, that's just a black duffel bag. That's a brown leather briefcase. But then when it goes under the machine and the TSA agents are standing there, I felt kind of like one of them for a moment. Oh, okay. Yeah, that guy's got paper and pencils and a laptop in there. Okay. Oh, that guy, wow, those are a bunch of wires. I hope that's something safe. I better let them look and see what that is going through. But I was just fixated on it. God does that to your heart. Right now, all I see is a bunch of normal-looking people Skin, bones, flesh and blood. But God looks at your heart. He knows all the motives that are happening right now. Are you listening to a sermon just to listen? Just to hear something new? Hear out of habit or a routine? Are you here to hear God's word? God searches your hearts at all times. He searches all hearts. He understands every plan and thought. David knew this. He knew that man doesn't look on the outward appearance. This is the only reason he was chosen to be king. He was just out in the field with the shepherds. Stand in awe of God for his character. Stand in awe of what he can do and what he knows of you. And take heart, Christian. Think about the weaponry that is provided for your life right here, that God searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. This means this is a weapon against hypocrisy. God knows what you're really about. This is a weapon against secret sins. Nobody else knows about this. Nobody else knows about this lustful thought, this second glance that I shouldn't be taking. God does. He understands every thought. 
This is a weapon against loneliness. Nobody understands me. Wait a minute. God does. He understands that thought more completely than you do, and he searches your heart. This is a weapon against apathy and depression. Nobody understands. Why, why even bother? Nobody's understanding what I'm trying to do for them. Why keep loving this family member? Because God searches your heart. He understands the plans and thoughts there. This verse is also an encouragement to be concise when you pray. Have you ever felt like you need to explain everything to God when you pray? And you're so wearied by the time you get done doing that, you just feel like you can't even get to what you really meant to say? Take heart. God already understands. This is an encouragement to right motives, to true inner intentions, to speak the truth in love. This is an encouragement not to fear man. You don't have to fear what your pastor thinks of you when you're serving here if he misunderstands something for a moment. God is the one searching your heart. God is the one understanding your plans and thoughts. Your pastor will never understand all of your plans and all of your thoughts, much less your own family members. So Solomon could have been tempted in this moment to build a magnificent temple for his own name, his own praise. Or on the flip side, he could have been tempted to an unwillingness. This is all my dad's project. This is not for me. But walking with God cures that. If his motives are pure before the Lord, did you notice how not just Solomon, but everybody is linked in this part of the verse? All of us listening at this moment, we're linked in because of what he says all hearts. God searches all hearts, not just Solomon's, but yours right now. Everybody in the assembly, when David would have said this, would have perked up. Oh, he's talking about us, too. So we know what it means to walk with God. We know what it requires of us, whole hearts, willing minds. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, the next part of verse 9 tells us, if you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. So here's the ground of everything that has gone before it. It all centers upon this part of verse 9. All the weight rests here. The only way you can walk with God and know him and serve him is because he allows himself to be found. That's the promise. But this is a knife edge. It's a razor thin line between you either know God and you're found. He finds you. There's a real relationship there. Or on the other side, you forsake him and he casts you off forever. There's no middle ground. Make no mistake, Scripture does not allow for kind of a holding pattern, a waiting period where I'll decide later in life if I, if I want to know God, if I want to seek Him. This is a promise. But here is where the gospel just completely wraps up this entire verse and holds it and doesn't let it go. How can that be true? If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you know your Bible well, you know that how can God make that promise? We're sinful. And if you know your Bible well, you also know that you have forsaken him. The way the Bible describes sin. How can these promises be true? Jesus Christ. The gospel. 
We have all forsaken God. We have not served Him wholeheartedly with a willing mind. We have forsaken God and resting over us, everyone outside of Christ resting over us is the moment we die and we are forsaken forever by the Lord. We are cast off. We can enjoy no good thing apart from Him. That's the only part of the verse that we do well. We forsake God. If this verse could be accomplished in our own strength, if it's just moralism, Jesus didn't have to die. And even if we wanted to seek him, and he promises he'll be found by you, that's only possible with the gospel as well. Because we're sinful. God is too pure and holy to dwell with unrighteousness. So we keep using this word gospel. If, if you don't know what that means this morning, or you're new to, to hearing that language, the gospel is just a summary of the good news of what Jesus has done. Every promise in Scripture finds its yes in him. Jesus lived this. He lived the life that you can't. He served God with perfect trust, perfect obedience. He lived the life you couldn't live. You were made in God's image to know him and serve him and love him and walk with him. But we've all gone our own way. We've chosen to be our own gods, to do what we want, when we want to do it, with who we want to do it with, for how long we want to do it, without anyone telling us when we can't do it again. But God has every right to cast us off forever, and he will if we don't know Christ. But he sent his son Christ to be pleasing, to offer up his life as a willing sacrifice, and by his blood on the cross, God is satisfied where your sin and his righteousness are exchanged. When you put your faith in what Jesus did, that's the great exchange. Jesus rose again. He wasn't just like every other criminal who died. He was an innocent man who died. And he rose again to prove he really was God. And now he makes every promise in the Bible. We're, we're looking at a promise here. He makes all the promises possible. Solomon should have known that it wasn't his own strength that could do this because he's building a temple. What happens at the temple? Sacrifices. Blood and blood and more blood of animals, all pointing that there needs to be mercy and grace. All of redemptive history has always shown it's not our good deeds. That doesn't earn us salvation. God has to enable his promises to happen. So look carefully at that promise there. Note the kindness and the severity of God. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Can you take heart today? Do you feel like, man, I've struggled lately to know God, to seek him? I'm not seeking him the right way. I don't know enough about the Bible. Set all that aside and listen to what he says. If you seek me, I will be found by you. In the original language, when it says the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan, God's searching, that word for searching is the same word for seek. In other words, what God's already doing to you, seeking you, knowing everything about you, he's inviting you to do that with him. Know me. 
There's enough of me to know for your whole lifetime, for 300 years like Enoch. Last question. What do I do now? Does my life just look like every other Christian's now? I just need to read my Bible and pray and just kind of know God and is that all there is? Is that the only way to know God? Is there any specific contour to the way he's created me in my life? Knowing Christ? Yes, verse 10. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Every Texas Longhorn who plays football has two logos on their jersey, don't they, besides their number. They've got the little Longhorn logo, which is very symmetrical and beautiful, by the way. And what do they have on the other side of the jersey? A Nike sign. This is the Nike verse. Be strong, do it. Get it done, Solomon. Why is David saying that? He said all this thing about walking with God, knowing him rightly, and then, oh, by the way, be strong, do it. Just get it done. Well, in the scriptures, be strong and do it is actually a common phrase. It's in Joshua, Ezra, Nehemiah. It meant to work hard, to get your mind ready for action. No excuses, just take courage, expect hurdles, do it. It's going to be a lot of work. But walking with God doesn't mean your life is just plain to where there's no unique aspect to you. How do we know that? Because of verse 10. This was a specific task for Solomon, just like there's specific task for you that God has tasked you with. Ephesians 2 tells us that there's good works prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There's responsibilities in your family right now. There's responsibilities where you work. There's responsibilities even in your church. You can't push off onto somebody else. God's laid them before you. An opportunity for you to be obedient. Consider that you have specific tasks. But the whole idea of this passage is never let these specific plans and goals and things that you have to accomplish, never let them overshadow your walk with God. You see, Solomon built the temple in seven years, and then it was done. There would be another task to complete. You can read earlier in the Old Testament, the book of Kings, that he, he lived this out. He walked with God. If you listen to the prayer when the temple is dedicated and how gloriously he speaks of the Lord, the Lord's mercy, if you think about how the temple was built, it tells us in 1 Kings 6-7 that when the house, when the temple was built, it was prepared with stones at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. In other words, there was a reverent, quiet hush. If a stone was brought into the temple to be positioned and it didn't fit right, you couldn't bust out the hammer and chisel and work it down to the right size. They had to take the stone out, outside, work on it. It would be loud, they're working on it, and then bring it back in. It was calm and quiet in the temple. Because Solomon knew what he was building was something of reverence. It would be a place where sacrifices would be offered. But sadly, we know what happens to Solomon, don't we? 
The temple's built. And then his heart's not true to the Lord. Yes, he wrote Proverbs. Yes, he had wisdom. But he let his heart go after idols, after women. 1 Kings 11.3, it says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord. Ecclesiastes may be evidence of repentance. But David is saying to Solomon, embrace it. Embrace your walk with the Lord. Don't let it go. Continually cultivate your walk with God. Don't let this go. This outlasts everything you're doing. This is more important than the things that could be on your bucket list. David was a man after God's own heart. He's passing on wisdom to us that we ought to walk with God. And I hope today that you see that it's not to be done in your own strength. Jesus Christ makes it possible to walk with God. There's one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. If you have never looked to Christ to begin walking with God, do that today. He can give you a cleansed heart, a whole heart. If it seems boring to sing hymns as we've done and hear long sermons and prayers, and Jesus can give you a willing mind for those things. I hope walking with the Lord is what you desire to be busy with until your dying day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you as the God who allows us to know you. We praise you for that, Lord. I ask, Father, that all those who are hearing these words would have extra motivation today by your Holy Spirit to begin new habits of walking with you new consistency in walking with you. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to do that with whole hearts, with willing minds. Help us to tell others about how joyful and good it is to be seeking you and you revealing yourself to us. Father, help us to even be faithful to warn others that if they forsake you, there's no hope. They're cast off forever. Give us strength, Lord. Help us do the task you've put before us, but let those projects and tasks and plans never overshadow our walk with you. We get to do an eternity with your son Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.